Good morning. Good morning, everyone. This is Valerie Leonard. I'm the founder of Nonprofit Utopia. I want to say welcome and thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us. We're going to be talking about how you can start a nonprofit organization and get it right the first time. And before I go into that, I just want to tell you a little bit about Nonprofit Utopia. We're the ideal community for emerging nonprofit leaders, and our goal is to train up to 20,000 nonprofits around the world, and that will be between now and 2033. So if you're in need of wanting to join a community of fellow nonprofit leaders, uh, feel free to join us. You can find out more at nonprofitutopia.mn.co. Alrighty, so I am going to get into the meat of our presentation today and talk about how we can start nonprofit organizations and get them right the first time. You know, so often when we try to start nonprofit organizations, we make the mistake of answering the questions that are asked of our government using common sense. And oftentimes common sense is not enough, right? So I'm here to share some of the insights that I've learned over the years. I've also started a couple organizations and I coach nonprofits through the process, helping them get it right the first time and minimize the back and forth between them and the government. Okay. So we got a lot to cover. We're going to talk about a community needs assessment, and that's really important because so often we follow our hearts in starting our own businesses, starting our own nonprofits, but we haven't necessarily taken the time to determine whether or not there is a need for what it is that we want to offer, or even if there's a demand. So it's not just enough to have a need, but people have to want what you're offering. I'm going to show you how to select your team. I'm going to show you how to develop your bylaws, uh, what you need to do to incorporate your organization, show you what you need to do to file for tax exempt status, talk a little bit about nonprofit compliance, show you what you need to do to manage the organization, and then I'll share with you some of the lessons that I've learned along the way, lessons that I've learned from starting a nonprofit, from coaching others through the process. So when we talk about the community needs assessment, we're looking at the community through the lens of the type of program that you're starting to, um, to run, right? So if you are running an education program, you might look at the same community just a little bit differently from someone who might be doing housing or a social service. You're all going to be looking at the same demographic data, but you're going to be looking at it for different types of patterns. So keep that in mind. You want to review trends. You want to look at news stories, statistics, issues as it relates to what it is you're trying to do and issues on the national level, um, the local level to see if there's any similarities, any differences, some of the lessons you might learn. You want to know who is also in the community doing what it is that you think you're going to be doing. Um, you want to make sure that there's no duplication of services and you want to be able to identify gaps and then also the quality of services. You know, do you think you could do it better than 
what other folks are doing. And quality is not only um, being able to deliver good service and programs, right? Quality is also dealing with consistency. You know, can people trust you to continue to do the work as well as you've been doing in the past? And you also need to make sure that you conduct your own research, right? Um, and that could be doing surveys. And the reason why that's so important is because you really want to get into the minds of people that you'll be serving. And the only way you can do that is through talking to them in interviews or in focus groups or taking surveys. And then you also want to be able to back up whatever you hear in those conversations with some statistics. And then you want to ask yourself a few questions that will guide everything that you do. And one question is, given your research, you know, be honest with yourself, is your organization necessary? Or do you have to pivot um, instead of serving youth between say 10 and 12, you might've spotted a gap and seen that uh, there was a gap in service and that people between 16 and 21 were not being served, right? Or is there just too much of that type of service being given altogether? And you know, what services will you provide? How can you differentiate yourselves among you know, the crowd, so to speak? And then you need to ask yourself, what resources are you going to need? Resources in terms of time, money, people, expertise. And then I will caution you, choose very, very, very wisely when you're selecting a team. I think we've all had horror stories um, that we can share when we selected team members that we thought we could trust, people that we thought would have our back and only to find out they had our backs only so they could stab us in the back. And, you know, I, I say that lightly, but it's true. You know, be very careful about the people that you bring to your team. Not only are you looking at strong character, but you're also looking at skill level. And skill level doesn't necessarily have to be limited to skills like um, finance and marketing skill level could also include things like the ability to deliberate you know are the people that you're thinking about willing to take the time to look at the pros and cons of the issues that come before you and remember your team is only as strong as your weakest member so you need to play to win and when we look at the legal duties of our board members. The first duty is the duty of loyalty. The duty of loyalty suggests, or not even just suggests, it requires that your board members are loyal first and foremost to the organization and its mission. It means that there should not be any conflicts of interest. And in the event that there are conflicts of interest, the board members need to disclose those conflicts of interest. They also need to avoid um, engaging in conflicts of interest. They should not be 
um, voting on any matters in which they have a conflict of interest. Because remember, as they're serving on your board, the most important thing is what happens with your board. Board members also have a fiduciary responsibility or duty of care. And that means that they need to weigh every issue that comes before the board, the pros and cons. They shouldn't be a rubber stamp. You know, all too often in many of our governing bodies, unfortunately, we see that people are following the leader, so to speak, and not necessarily giving their true and honest assessment of the issues that come before. And as a result, our cities are hurting, our counties are hurting, our country is hurting, and you don't want that same kind of dynamic in your organization. You want people who will be honest with you and be able to make those tough decisions and truly weigh the pros and cons before making any decision. Board members are also responsible for the strategic direction of the organization. That is, they have taken into account what's going on in the community and looking at the changes in the community. And they're also responsive to those changes, making sure that the organization is providing high quality services as a result of their response to the marketplace, right? So they're going to have strategies in place or their way of addressing the changes in the market. And they're also going to be willing to change those strategies, those programs. They also set policies, you know, the rules of the way an organization operates. They also are managed by bylaws and they provide input into the way those bylaws should be changed. They also approve budgets and they manage the executive director. They don't manage staff other than the executive director. And some of the tips that I have found to be very, very helpful when building an organization, especially you know when you look at your board, you want to make sure that you have a diversity of skill sets around the table. You know, so for example, you know, you want people who understand finance, people who understand marketing, people who understand program development, people who have a legal mind, etc. And even adding to those diverse skill sets, you want people who actually have a skill at deliberating, at you know, weighing the pros and cons. Not everybody can do that. You want to make sure that the people that you select are committed to the mission and vision and your cause. And they're going to be willing to not only put in the time, but they'll share their resources in terms of money, in terms of their network and other resources. And they'll also make sure that between the meetings that they're doing their homework, you know, just because you only have monthly board meetings doesn't mean that the board should forget to be engaged between meetings. You know, if, if the organization is going to be moving forward, that means your board has to be busy between meetings. And it's really important, too, that you don't stack your board with family members or people have who have potential conflicts of interest or even people who are 
so close in your same circles that you're on serving on several boards together. You're in business with many ventures together. The IRS frowns upon that and they will be able to spot those patterns in your application. So be really, really careful. You want to make sure that the people you bring are not only skilled, but they're objective. And it's important too to engage your board in ongoing education. It's not enough to just recruit people and then give them an orientation. That training needs to go on for the life of the organization. People should always be reminded of their roles and responsibilities. You know, the board, you know, what their responsibilities are versus what the staff roles are so that staff and board are not tripping over each other to do the work. You should also educate your board in terms of stewardship. You know, once you get the gifts, making sure that you're good stewards over that money, making sure the money is being spent for the purpose for which it was given, making sure that it's managed and not squandered, and making sure that you say thank you. You know, something just as simple as saying thank you and engaging your funder, that goes a long, long way. You should also educate your board about the legal liabilities associated with being on the board. You know, we talk about the glamour of being on the board and some of the power that might be attached to being on the board, the status that might be attached to being on the board, but we often neglect to talk about the liabilities. Remember, your board is more responsible than even your executive director that for what goes on. The board is ultimately legally responsible for anything that happens with the organization. So if the organization gets sued, the board can also be sued. So it's really, really important that you get people who have sound judgment, who are willing to take on those types of liabilities, but it's also important to make sure you have insurance and bonding that will protect the board members because you don't want people to not serve on your board because they don't want to take on any legal responsibilities. You also need to make sure that the organization maintains compliance at the federal level, the local level, um, compliance with your funders. And when we talk about compliance, we're talking about making sure that you are within, you're operating within the rules and regulations of whoever has funded you, uh, operating within the rules and regulations of our government agencies at the state level, at the federal level, and even the county level and city level where applicable. You wanna make sure that you're following all the rules, so to speak. You wanna make sure that you're filing your reports in a timely manner so that people don't threaten to withhold your funding, so that people don't threaten. And when I say people at this point, I'm talking about the government. So the government doesn't threaten to take your tax exempt status. Your board is ultimately responsible for making sure the organization is in compliance. Your board is also ultimately responsible for fundraising. So you want to make sure that the people that you bring to your board are well educated about their responsibilities for fundraising. And also, you know, 
making sure that you follow up or follow through when people are not living up to their roles and responsibilities. Your board should also understand community issues. They should understand program issues and how your programs and services respond to those communities. So it's really, really helpful to give your board members or potential board members a walkthrough of the organization, give them a tour of the community so that they get a really, really good feel for what your work is about and the mission and how your mission is impacting the lives of people in the community. And you also want to make sure that you develop bylaws, right? Strong bylaws. And remember that your bylaws are called by law because that is precisely what they are. They're legal documents. They should usually, they not usually, they should always be in alignment with your attorney general's office and the state code or the state laws that um, govern nonprofit organizations. Your bylaws are going to talk, they're going to define the structure of the organization. They'll have the rules and operating um, rules at a very high level. Um, and when we talk about the high rules, we're talking, the rules at the high level, we're talking about things like attendance, uh, we're talking about terms of office and, and things like that. And then your policies are going to be a little bit more detailed to I actually put some legs on these bylaws. And the next thing you need to do is get a tax identification number. You need the tax identification number so that the federal government can notify you, but also keep in tra you know keep track of what your organization is doing um, to let them know whether you've been naughty or nice, so to speak. Um, they'll use that number too to keep track of your reporting and if there's anything that you've done that's out of line, they will also have that number for you. All right, so you can apply for the number online. It's a really quick process. You can also call in to get it and you can apply by fax. And two, make sure that you have your articles of incorporation. And what your articles of incorporation do is they formally organize the organization and it's something that um, it, it creates the legal entity it lets the state know that you're in business so to speak and when you're doing your articles of incorporation even before you do them make sure that the name that you are thinking about is not being used by someone else so you need to look up uh, with, at least in the uh, state of Illinois, you can go to CyberDrive Illinois and do a nonprofit lookup, not even a nonprofit, I'm sorry, it's a corporation lookup and you see if that name has been used. And then also if it hasn't been used, you still might end up choosing a name that doesn't sound like a nonprofit. So if your name does not sound like a nonprofit name or a name that is doing um, community service, then it might work to your advantage to put the letter NFP at the end so people can look at it and know that it's a not 
a nonprofit. So the NFP stands for not for profit. You want to select your registered agent, and it's very, very important to have someone who is diligent in his or her work, right? So the registered agent is the one that gets all the legal notices for the organization. They get all the notifications of all the filings that you have to file. You know, they're the ones where all of the, I guess, mail goes to as it relates to official business for the organization. So you want somebody who's very, very reliable to be that registered agent. In many instances, the registered agent is going to be the same person who started the organization or sometimes organization may get an attorney to be that registered agent or they might list the executive director as the registered agent. You also need to list your board of directors. And at this point, you haven't necessarily elected officers. You just have people who have agreed to be on the board and they are initial incorporators. You have to make sure that your purpose is listed in the document. And for, for whatever reason, please do not just rely on the list of purposes that the state of Illinois gives you. Please do not rely on common sense. Please do not rely on your mission statement for this purpose. Um, in order to have a purpose that will pass muster with the IRS, you literally have to copy and paste language that is found in the IRS code, um, federal law, um, as it relates to the tax code. So. I can share that with you. Um, if, if you're a member of Nonprofit Utopia, I can post that in the Nonprofit Utopia um, community. And again, it's really, really important. One of the reasons why people um, don't get tax exempt status is because they have not used the right language to describe their purpose. And people should remember just because it's okay with the state that they're in doesn't mean that the purpose will pass muster with the federal government. And you also need to make sure that you include other provisions that are required by the federal government. Typically, those other provisions are not required by your local state, but they are required by the federal government. So there's uh, specific language that you have to include, you know, as it relates to um, the organization is not going to be distributing earnings um, and making sure that when the organization dissolves that the assets go back into the community and that kind of stuff. And then you want to file with your secretary of state. Now that's in the state of Illinois. If you're in another state, there may be another agency that you need to file with. So if you're not in the state of Illinois, um, you might consider going to your attorney general's office, go to your secretary of state's office, or your department of business services. You know, I found that um, if folks are not going through their secretary of state, they might be going through one of those other offices and, and then find out what it is they require for the articles of incorporation. 
And the next thing you want to do is develop your budget. And actually, your budget should be developed after you really have a good sense of what it is you need to be doing, you know, how many staff people it's going to take and all that good stuff. But when you develop your budget, you want to brainstorm with your board members to make sure that you're identifying the issues that your organization is going to address, um, get their goals and objectives, and then the programs that you want to provide, the resources that it's going to take to accomplish your mission, vision, goals, and objectives for the first three years. And all of that information is going to be outlined in your application for tax exempt status. So you want to develop a budget. So three years worth of annual budgets for your first three years of operation, and that will go on your application. And once you get your articles of incorporation back from the Secretary of State, you want to hold your first board meeting. So you want to make sure you develop the board agenda, and that will include things like um, holding elections. It will include things like approving your board, approving the articles of amendment or I'm sorry, articles of incorporation. And then, you know, given that this is your first board meeting and your bylaws are in effect, which are probably going to outline how much notice you're going to have to give for each meeting, you're going to need to send out the waiver of notice and have that signed by all of the board members saying that they have waived their right to be notified within you know the normal time period and the reason you do that is because there have been no other meetings prior to this again so um, here are typical things that you talk about for your first in, during your first board meeting you do elections you approve the bylaws you have them certified by the secretary you approve your first year budget, you select your bank and designate signatories and all of that should be consistent with what's going on in your bylaws. You also want to make sure that your, your writing minutes, your secretary has um, the minutes and those minutes have been approved and certified by the secretary. So approved by the board, but certified by the secretary. The next thing you want to do is register with the attorney general's office. And again, this is for the state of Illinois. Your particular state may have slightly different rules, but in the state of Illinois, uh, you want to register with the attorney general's office. And truly speaking, most States, you have to register with the attorney general's office when you want to do fundraising. So you want to file form CO1 and CO2 within the first year of starting the organization. And form CO1 basically, you know, gives general information about who the board of directors are, you know, the registered agent, the nature of your business. Um, form CO2 is more financial in nature. So in, on that form, they want to get a sense for your 
assets and liabilities and your income and expenses. And these forms basically put the attorney general's office on notice that you're fundraising. And again, they're providing basic information about your board and your finances. And I always recommend that people get into the compliance mode, you know, when they're starting the organization. So often we don't think about compliance until we have a problem. You know, we might have forgotten to to put our forms in in time and all that good stuff. So you want to get into the habit now, focusing on your compliance. So you want to start learning what forms you need to file on an annual basis. All right. So you need to know what the IRS requires. You need to know what your various state agencies require. And if there's anything that your particular city requires, you need to you know, make a list of those things, uh, a list of the dates that they're due, and that'll create your compliance calendar. And then after that, you want to file for tax-exempt status. All right, so remember, we've gone through the process of incorporating. We've gone through the process of letting our states know that we are in the process of fundraising. So the next thing we want to do is apply for tax exempt status. All right, so you have two options. You could do a Form 1023, which is your application for tax exempt status, or you can do the short form, the 1023EZ. And the short form is for organizations who have less than $50,000, all right, in terms of their budget. I would strongly recommend that even the small organizations do the long form 1023 versus the short form. Um, the short form requires, or it only requires your word, right? Um, you're, there'll be questions that ask you if your articles of incorporation follow the guidelines set by the IRS. Most people say yes, and of course you have to say yes, whether it's true or not, if you want to get your tax-exempt status. Some organizations say yes, and that has not yet been done. Um, they say yes because they're in a hurry and they have every intention of coming back and getting it done and they may never get it done, all right? So what I like about the long form is you have to provide all the documentation for people to review to see if it's in good order. And the long form 1023 also provides so much information that it really serves as a good guideline for you developing your first funding proposal because you have to describe you know, what your mission is, you have to describe your programs, you have to talk about your budgets and all of that stuff. And by the time you're done, you really have uh, much of what you need to write a proposal. And I also encourage you to type out whatever forms you have to do, especially the articles of incorporation, because from time to time, um, people will see those documents, right? And you want to put your best face forward. It doesn't look quite as professional if you handwrite them, even though the information could be accurate. All right. And remember, once you get your 501c3, your form 1023 application 
you have to make that available on demand. So you really want that to be nice looking, right? And you know the same is true for your minutes. Um, you should make available your minutes and you want those minutes to be in proper order. Remember your minutes are legal documents and you need to record all actions and actions are tip, you know, and when I talk about actions, I'm talking about votes, so to speak. All right. And the good thing about the long form for 1023, you can look at it, you know, the, the person reviewing it, they can look at it and understand whether or not the work that you're doing is quote unquote charitable, you know, work for the good of the community and charitable you know, doesn't necessarily have to mean social services. You know, it could be scientific, it could be educational, etc. You know, the, the law is very clear about what's permissible. The Form 1023 also helps you to understand the who, the what, the where, and the why the work is being done and how much it'll cost. Because remember, you're describing the organization within the context of its um, community but you also have a budget, right? So they could determine whether or not that budget is realistic. And then there are certain questions that'll help them understand whether or not this organization has a bunch of conflicts of interest, whether or not they're engaged in partisan political activities, and whether or not the organization is benefiting the community itself or its board members. So it is really important I think, to fill out the long form. All right, and then after you get your tax-exempt status from the IRS, then, you know, for the folks in the state of Illinois, the next step is to file for exemption, exemption from state sales taxes. And this requires um, not only submitting a letter of request to the Illinois Department of Revenue, in fact, they now have a form that you need to fill out. It's called Stacks One, and you provide the articles of incorporation, your bylaws, your IRS letter. You give a narrative about your organization that explains its purposes, functions, and activities, uh, provide marketing materials like brochures, um, that will talk about the purpose of your organization, the functions and activities, and then any other information that you might have. And I will say this, that organizations that are engaged in um, economic development, for some reason, they have a very, very difficult time getting exemption from state sales tax. So I would urge you to try, but just know that if you're dealing with economic development, there's a strong possibility that you won't be able to get exemption from state sales taxes. So now we talked about how you should start your organization and get tax exempt status. Let's not forget that the hard part is just starting, right? So you need to manage your organization. You need to develop an organizational structure that is gonna help you efficiently do the work. You need to engage in ongoing board development and education. 
You need to also develop a strategic plan, um, develop programs, develop proposals for funding, develop a marketing and communication strategy, and then also hire people and make sure you have policies and procedures for your human resources. And let's not forget that you know you need to be focused on other things too, like legal and contracts, as well as compliance. So other issues, uh, again, we talked about legal, we talked about, I, well, we didn't talk about IT, but technology is very critical for any organization. Make sure you have up-to-date IT that will help you to expand your reach and do your work more efficiently. You need to also focus on financial management. Make sure you have policies and procedures in place. In fact, you need policies and procedures for everything on this list, right? Um, volunteer management is critical. Operations and administration, compliance, program evaluation, performance management, and risk assessment and insurance. Again, making sure that you have policies and procedures for all of this. And ideally your policies and procedures would also be reviewed by an attorney. So I wanna share with you some of the lessons that I've learned um, in my career of running nonprofit organizations, in my career coaching and consulting to nonprofit organizations. The first thing you wanna do is focus on compliance. Again, compliance is often left to be an afterthought and people don't even focus on it for the most part until they're in trouble. And when I say in trouble, that means getting a letter from the state or the IRS saying that they haven't completed some form and they could be in jeopardy of losing their tax exempt status or having to pay some fines. So you really don't wanna be in that position. So you wanna focus on compliance first, understand what reports you need to file, when, and make sure you develop a calendar. You want to develop strategic plans and programs that are community driven. That is, make sure that there's a demand form and not just a need. You know, we can all look around our communities and know what we need, you know, for our organizations. But we have to make sure that what it is that the organizations need is also something that they're willing to pay for, willing to use. All right, and your program should always be developed with input from people that are your major stakeholders. So your major stakeholders are gonna be your funders, they're gonna be people who use your service, people who live in the community, people who could be potential partners. And then you wanna make sure that you enhance transparency. And when I talk about transparency, I'm talking about making sure people in the community and your other stakeholders know what it is you're doing, why you're doing it, and how it's been done. I'm not saying that you need to give away um, personnel and other confidential information, but you should also remember that when you start a nonprofit organization, part of the reason that you're going to maintain that tax exempt status is you're accountable now to the community. Right, so you have to disclose 
information. And the more you disclose, the better. Um, the more you disclose, the better your chances of getting funding. The more people trust you, the more likely people are to be partners with you, the more likely people are to use your services. Organizations that try to keep everything close to the vest tend to not grow, right? And you really don't want to start an organization that has no chance of growing. Other lessons that I've learned are, you know, you need to make sure that there's open and honest communications at all levels. Um, you want to make sure that people are trusting, right? When people start to not trust leadership, then they tend to withhold information themselves. They tend to not give of their best. They tend to give you the bare minimum of what they have. And then when they don't trust you, they often don't stick around or they may not want to join you. And then another thing you need to know is just because we say nonprofit, does it mean that you're not trying to bring in more money than you spend? And it doesn't mean that you can't be an entrepreneur in your approach. And when I say entrepreneurial, I'm talking about, you know, looking at the world and being innovative. You see a problem and you try to solve it and you're constantly innovating. So just because you're a nonprofit doesn't mean that you stay stagnant. Um, another lesson that I learned is making sure that from the beginning, you start planning for evaluation. You know, while you're developing the, the organization, while you're developing the program, while you're developing the proposal, you don't want to get to a point where you're implementing the program to try to figure out how you're going to determine whether or not it's successful. You don't want to wait till you start a program to figure out what data you're going to collect and who's going to collect it. You know, one of the worst things that can one that can happen is to have someone say, prove your organization is doing what it says it does, and you don't have the data to prove it. All right. And then remember, too, that organizations go through growth stages and you might have one type of leader at the beginning, another type of leader at the in the middle, and then another type of leader once the organization becomes an institution. In the best of all world, the founder or the, the founding executive director will be able to grow and change through all of those different growth phases. However, it's important to know that the way you operate as a startup is going to be very different from the way you operate as a more mature organization. And one thing too that is so important, in fact, I would suggest that if you could go through this exercise even before you submit your application for tax exempt status, you want to develop a strong program logic model. And this model is from the University of Wisconsin Extension Program. And what I like about it is it takes into account your ongoing evaluation. So what you do is you focus on the community first, right? Get a really good understanding of what's going on in the community. So that's the situation analysis. So you're looking at 
not only what happens in the community, but you actually start off looking at the big picture. The big picture could be something that's happening globally. It could be nationally. It could be uh, with our policies and our laws. And then we start drilling down to more specific and look at what's happening in our states, our counties, our cities, our communities, our organizations, our clients, our volunteers, our board members. Um, make sure that you have a really good grasp for what's happening, you know, externally, as well as your internal response, right? And then after you understand what's going on in the world, you develop goals and objectives. So your goals are what it is you want to achieve. Your objectives are how you're going to achieve. And your objectives can be process, you know, meaning you're focused on how you do the work, the number of people that come through, you know, and then they could be, your objectives could be um, how you're going to change. So they could be process goals and objectives, or they could be outcome oriented. And again, outcome is focusing on the result. What's going to change in the lives of your clients and communities as a direct result of the work that your organization is doing? And then we look at the inputs. So what are the resources that we actually need in order to meet our goals and objectives and to change the lives of the people around us? So the things that we already have on hand, those are the things that we invest. We can have a little bit of money in our pockets. And when I say our pockets, I'm talking about the organization's pockets. We can have staff time, equipment and supplies but even so, there still may be some resources that we need to go and get, you know. So the things we have are the things we invest. The things we don't have and we need, we got to figure out how we're going to get them. So those are the things that we acquire. So that could be additional staff that we need to hire to do this program. It could be training that we need. It could be um, expertise in the form of a consultant or a new hire. And then after that, we go into who it is we're actually reaching and what it is we do. So the who we reach is targeting people, right? Who is our target? Ideal person we're trying to serve. And what do we do for them? We provide programs and we provide services. And then what's gonna happen? to them as a result of all the stuff we do. You know, what's gonna happen for them in the short term? What's gonna happen to them in the intermediate term? What's gonna happen over the long term? And here is an example. And this uh, mentoring model, this is based on an actual program that was designed by the Department of Labor under the Second Chance Act. And this program focuses on the mentoring and job training aspects, but the Second Chance Act really focuses on providing comprehensive services to people who are coming out of prison and making sure they have what they need so that they can survive in the world. So that could be things like housing, um, 
education, making sure they get their GED, making sure they get um, counseling, um, making sure that they can break any addiction they have. But what they noticed is the things that are most determinant on whether or not people go back to prison or recidivate are making sure they have mentors and making sure that they're gainfully employed so they don't really have a need or the time to engage in criminal activity. All right, so the situation here in Chicago and the state of Illinois at the time, over 650,000 inmates are released per year in the United States and they return to their families and communities. Without intervention, 40% of returning inmates would return or recidivate within five years. 18,377 inmates were released to Cook County, and that's the Chicago area, in 2001. Of that number, 15,488, or 84.3%, were released to the city of Chicago. And the Second Chance Act of 2007 was passed actually in April of 2008. So we know that situation. And then the goal is given what we know was in the community to reduce the rate of recidivism among clients in the Second Chance Act funded programs by 50% over the next five years. So what that is saying is we're going to take the people that we have control over and not that you kind of control their lives, but the people who are within our program that we have some influence over. We want to make sure that we can reduce their recidivism rate by 50%. So what are some of the things that we need in order to do that? So we look at our inputs or our resources. So we've got to hire a case manager. We're going to recruit and train mentors. And we're going to hire a VISTA volunteer. We're going to purchase software to track program outcomes. We're going to provide professional development opportunities for our staff. We're going to develop pre-release orientation and learning opportunities for people while they're still in prison so that when they get out, it won't be that much of a transition. It won't be as hard. And we're also going to provide matching funds and in-kind donations of up to 50% of the grant amount. So what are some of the activities or some of the outputs we're going to produce? We're going to target nonviolent offenders who are between, who are over 18, right? That have been released from prison within the past 180 days or six months. We want to give them case management and mentoring programs. We want to provide job training and placement. And we also want to make referrals to supportive services. So what's going to change, right, as a result? So we look at the outcomes. Uh, one outcome will be that our clients are going to secure employment. And an indicator or measure of that will be the number of clients entering employment. Another outcome we want to see is that our clients are going to establish a consistent work history. And an indicator of that would be the number of clients who remain employed. So 
So we can look at people who remain employed after three months, six months, a year, and longer. Another outcome that we want to see our clients are earning living wages and not minimum wage. And the way we know whether or not that happens is we look at the average earnings of the people that are going through our program. So and and then finally, we want to increase public safety and an indicator of public safety is the number of people who no longer go to prison. So an indicator would be the rates of recidivism among our program participants. If our program is working, we would expect that number to go down. So the good thing about this model is it focuses on evaluation before the program even starts. So with the evaluation, you ask yourself, what's the power of the mentoring model to reduce recidivism? And in order to answer that question, we have to see what happens, right? But we're going to use data from our intake process. Our intake process gives a baseline assessment of where people are once they come into our program. And then we'll do continuous assessments, right? And then we'll look at other documents to conduct other assessments and quality improvement. And then we are also gonna hire an outside evaluator to provide evidence-based program evaluation. So again, if our program is working, we would expect to see people gainfully employed we would expect to see people making living wages. We would expect them to stay in the job more than six months, more than a year, right? And we would expect to see that they're making living wages. And most importantly, we would expect them not to go to prison. And here is a sample program flowchart. I always find that flowcharts are really, really helpful in developing you know my my thought process about how a program should work um, the program flowchart also helps to not only develop the the way the program should work it helps you to eliminate any duplication and when you're describing your program for a proposal it helps you to really capture what the whole program is about. And the same is true for the logic model. Once you fill out this chart, all you have to do is describe what's going on and you'll be able to give a meaningful description of what your program is. So in this case, when we look at the flow chart, this program, you know, we start with recruitment. We're going to recruit people who are in prison or people who have just gotten out within the past six months they will then go through our intake process. Um, during that intake process, there'll be an assessment to see what needs they are, what experiences they've had, you know, what needs they have and what experiences they have had. And then we will assign them to a case manager. And the case manager will then not only provide referrals to refer uh, to supportive services like housing um, and counseling and that kind of thing. What they will also do is make sure 
they get job training. They're assigned to a mentor. And when I say they, these are people who are just out of prison. They get placed in a job and then there will be follow-up. And then you've got this continuous loop. You know, after the follow-up, if they need to go back to job training or get some mentoring, you know, you go through that cycle over and over again. All right, if you have any questions, please feel free to post in the comment section. I'm going to start looking at those questions now. If you have any other questions, you can email me at consulting at ValerieFLeonard.com. You can call me at 571-3886. And you can also contact me at ValerieFLeonard at nonprofitutopia.com. Alrighty, so are there any questions or comments? Any questions about anything that I have shared? All right, I see that my cousin Albert Tate was watching. I say thank you. I don't know if he's still there. He's always so supportive of me and everything that I do. I, I want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart, cousin. And thank you so much for suggesting that your friend, Walter Delaney, tunes in. Are there any questions, any comments before I sign off? All right. I'll wait maybe a minute longer to see if there are any questions or comments. All right, so Walter Delaney, if you're there, feel free to make any comments, ask any questions that you might have. And the same is true for anyone else. Thank you, Leslie. Leslie is a member of Nonprofit Utopia. She says this is very thorough. And I thank you, Leslie. Thank you for being a wonderful member, very supportive, always sharing different um, resources. And Leslie is going to lead the charge for developing a lot of the content for next month when we look at social innovation for nonprofits. All right. All right, there doesn't seem to be any more questions, but again, if you have any questions, any comments, you wanna contact me, you can email me at ValerieFLeonard at nonprofitutopia.com. Again, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Take care, bye-bye.